Hi, my name is Pamela Coons, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Oncology at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Cancer Center. I'm excited to announce ASCO's new open access journal, JCO Oncology Advances. As the inaugural editor-in-chief, I hope to support JCO Oncology Advances to become the premier platform to bridge the gap between accessible scientific research and clinical care. Stay tuned for more information, including new article types, at ascopubs.org forward slash JCO Oncology Advances. We look forward to seeing your submissions in spring of 2024. The guest on this podcast episode has no disclosures to declare. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of JCO After Hours. The podcast for the Journal of Clinical Oncology, where we get in-depth on manuscripts that have been recently published in the journal. Today, we're going to be talking about a comments and controversies article titled, Ensuring Employment After Cancer Diagnosis, Are Workable Solutions Obvious? This was published online November 3rd, 2022. And I'm thrilled that we're accompanied by all three of the fantastic authors of this manuscript, including Dr. Kathy Bradley, who is Professor and Associate Dean for Research at the Colorado School of Public Health and Deputy Director of the University of Colorado Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Bradley. Thank you. We're also joined by Dr. Tina Shi, who's professor, chief of the section of cancer economics and policy in the Department of Health Services Research, the Division of Cancer Prevention and Population Sciences at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Welcome. And then finally, we have Dr. Robin Yabroff, who's scientific vice president of health services research at the American Cancer Society. Welcome. Thank you. We're so excited to have the three of you, and I know this is going to be a lively discussion and such a timely and important topic that I really just don't think enough has been done in this area. So you guys are to be congratulated. So let's start by level setting. How many survivors are of working age and may consider work continuation during treatment? Yeah, we don't have a perfect estimate of that. We know there are just over 18 million Survivors and half, maybe even 60% are working age and possibly employed during their survivorship time. And I'll add to that and say that there are also a lot of informal caregivers who are taking care of patients receiving cancer treatment who are of working age. And so that includes spouses, children, and parents. Excellent point. It does bring up a good point because I think sometimes with this type of research, we're so focused on, you know, the, the survivor themselves. But when we really look at the definition of survivorship, it includes the caregivers and the, the people that are participating in the care of the actual patient. Well, why don't you guys talk a little bit about some of the benefits of work continuation to cancer survivors? Like, why should we be even thinking about this? Yeah, I think there are a number of reasons. I mean, the two obvious, of course, are income and insurance. Income in order to continue their daily lives, but also health insurance to continue their treatment and surveillance. And that health insurance is not just for them, but it's also for their dependents and for their entire families and sometimes for their caregivers and others as well. So there's being able to preserve income and insurance is critical to cancer survivors as it is to all of us. And then there are all the other benefits of work, of continued 
career growth, to continue quality of life, that interaction, social interaction with others, and a sense of self-worth and identity that many of us have wrapped up in our jobs. Yeah, and I think the other issue to think about is income also tied to your retirement savings. So you don't want to stop your earning ability. So that make you know continue working also important. And then also to have, you know, like a sense of achieving something so that you wouldn't be continuously thinking about only cancer treatment, but there's other aspects of life. Yeah, I think, you know, what I've seen in my practice is that another benefit of continuing to work is they're not just focused on themselves as the patient. And I think you got at that a a little bit with that idea of self-worth, but it's also a distraction, right? Like I'm not sitting at home thinking about what's going on with my cancer. What's the next step in my treatment? You know, it's kind of just keeping your mind busy with other things. I also wonder if, you know, when we talk about chemotherapy brain, you know, if continuing to work and stimulate your mind and things like that could potentially be helpful in that setting as well. Like we tell patients to do puzzles or and things like that. But, you know, staying busy at your job and pushing the envelope there some, sometimes could seem to be beneficial as well. So I guess I want to back up a little bit and just see what kind of led you all to be interested in this area. What were the kind of inciting experiences that led you to start to explore this work? For me, it was just an observation over time and growing up and seeing people around me who had to make incredibly stark choices, you know, whether or not to continue to be diagnosed with a serious illness, but not be able to get care without that health insurance. So it's a very stark choice that they have between being able to continue to work or take time off to care for their illness during this very acute phase. And that just struck me as such an an important thing that we needed to shine a light on, that as we make advancements in treatment and early detection, and the thing with early detection is that you're going to pick up more people who are working age with cancer and their source of insurance is their jobs. So looking at this stark choice, it just seemed critical to start to study these questions systematically. And as I said, shine a light on this issue. For me, I had the experience of my mother being diagnosed with cancer when I was in graduate school. And I was fortunate that I was working and I had a supportive employer. But everyone in my family, including my father and my sisters, were able to take leaves of absence with paid sick leave that allowed us to step up and care for my mother. But I realized that we were coming from such a place of privilege in having paid sick leave, it really, as Kathy said, for many people who don't have the opportunity to continue working, it's a really stark decision. And then I'll also be a little bit of a fangirl. I saw Kathy give a talk a while ago, and I was so fascinated with her research related to this topic. So I approached her afterwards and asked if we could work together. You are too kind. I won't say how long ago it was, but it was a long time ago. I think for me, I was trained as a labor economist in my PhD program. And and after that, I've been keep on wanting to connect cancer study with labor market studies. But there's really not uh, good data on that. So I'm also an admirer of Cassie's work. Like she's able to like, you know, build that connection. And and of course, it's it's been a lot of fun working with, you know, these two really accomplished uh, researchers. It's been the best collaboration for the three of us to work together. Absolutely. 
I love these cross institution collaborations and not even just institution, obviously the ACS. Well, I guess it's big enough to be an institution, but it really is. It's inspiring to me because I think a lot of times, you know, we tend to collaborate within our own institution or within our own group even. So you all are really have created a model of success here. So getting back to work continuation, what are some of the gaps of knowledge that we have in this area and and why, you know, why are they, why do they exist? I think Tina said it best. There's just no good data sources out there. We're not like Scandinavian countries that can link our health system with our employment data and link it all up and and understand what's going on that this area generally, I mean, from my studies require primary data collection and other studies. There's some surveys that are out there. Robin's done a great job publishing in this area using secondary data set, but we just don't have a single data source that ties it all together. So that is the biggest challenge in in studying this area and leading to our gaps. We don't know which treatments lead to fewer or more side effects. Work effects are not studied in clinical trials. They're not recorded in medical records. You know, we just, there's so much that we just don't know that we can't say and that providers can't have a conversation with their patients about how a particular treatment course will affect their ability to work. So I think to add to that, like, you know, like for people, for us who want to study um, the working age population, there's no equivalent data to see a Medicare. So a lot of time you have to kind of guess what's happening with the cancer stage or and a lot of time you can only know what cancer patients have, but but that kind of limits your ability to dig deeper into, you know, are they getting the right chemotherapy or are they getting the right treatments? Because you don't really know the stage. I'll just reiterate what both Kathy and Tina already stated, which is really the lack of comprehensive data, not only about cancer and the clinical details of treatment and diagnosis, but also about the types of jobs that people have. So, you know, many times we know whether or not they had a job, but not how long they've had it, how many hours they work a week. And so a lot of our data from national surveys are really pretty limited for exploring any of the longitudinal effects of a cancer diagnosis on work, which we think is are really important, not only for patients, but also for their informal caregivers and family members. So I think I might know the answer to this based on what you all are saying, but how do we overcome these gaps to be able to increase research in this area? I think creating that data infrastructure and collecting the information is what's critical. And we know that providers and patients don't, not all of them have discussions about employment when they go in to make treatment decisions, that that's often not part of that shared decision-making about going forward, the employment component, and the patient's kind of left trying to figure it out. I just think there are more opportunities to create that data infrastructure to stimulate that discussion and to have follow-up. And I want to add to that to say that a lot of time the information we want to collect about employment, patients, they have the information. I think they would be willing to provide that information I think this, the information is not as sensitive as, hey, what is your income level or, you know, things like that. I think we should be able to collect that information with really high quality data uh, just by asking patients. And I, I want to reiterate the importance of getting longitude, having longitudinal information about employment over time. Some people may take a brief or extended leave of absence 
from work while receiving cancer treatment, but what happens when they return? And what does that mean for career development and mobility and how they return to a fulfilling work life for both the patients and the family members? So as Kathy said, many, many providers don't discuss employment and job tasks and things like that with patients. And I think another advantage, and I'm not, I don't remember if we mentioned this, but another advantage of these discussions is tailoring treatment so that patients will be most likely to complete the recommended treatment. Because you can imagine a situation where someone who is being treated for cancer cannot get time away from work and doesn't complete their treatment, or they can't get time from work because they don't have paid sick leave and they need the income and they can't complete their treatment. I want to add to that point in one of the studies we look at young women with, uh, we look at the age of kids, and then we notice that among those with lumpectomy, about one in five, 20% of women actually uh, did not have radiation therapy follow up after lumpectomy. So that's a, that's a big problem. And then so that also reflects you need to tailor your treatment based on your patient's needs. Yeah, I remember that study, Tina. I thought it was a really, it was really clever where you were looking at newly diagnosed patients with breast cancer who received breast conserving surgery but did not complete the radiation treatment. And so thinking about childcare is really important too. Transportation, all of those things that play into treatment completion, especially for people who are employed and trying to balance their jobs with their treatment. And I think the scenario Robin laid out of someone taking leave and then coming back, but you also have the other scenario where people just try to gut it out and do everything at once and then later become disabled. So this longitudinal data and understanding what's going on and the impact of whether or not they complete, as Tina has shown earlier, and women in my studies have reported they will miss treatment before they miss work if it jeopardizes their health insurance, especially if they have children. Going back to Tina's point, if they have kids and those kids are dependent on them, they're not going to risk health insurance and their family's well-being. We see this quite a bit with patients with cervical cancer. Obviously, it's a problem across all, all cancer types, but there especially seems to be quite a bit of burden amongst survivors of cervical cancer. And, you know, they're required to have daily treatment for six weeks. And we know best outcomes occur when that timeline is kept very tight. And when we have multiple missed radiation treatments and the timeline extends out, say, past 10 weeks, then you you see worse outcomes. And so, you know, we definitely are living this every day in the clinic. How can workplaces support survivors? Because I feel like a lot of what we're talking about is that fear of losing their job, that, you know, need to keep insurance. So what are some strategies or some suggestions I guess we should make to workplaces to help support their survivors? Of course, having benefits like paid sick leave and those things are critical and being flexible, offering accommodations, flexible work schedules of when they come in and when they leave, or if they're able to do their work at off hours or remotely, those things are all helpful. We've moved into more of a remote environment since COVID. Those things can be very beneficial, but for somebody who, who does a job where that's not an option, I think there are other kinds of accommodations that employers can make and being respectful and understanding of a patient who is going through this and valuing them as an employee 
maybe not necessarily as a survivor, but as an employee who's dealing with something that's pretty critical. And I'll let Robin speak for the caregiver component. As usual, you read my mind. That's exactly what I was going to say. The importance of offering paid sick leave and health insurance coverage for the patient and also for the informal caregivers and also those accommodations. Because frequently informal caregivers are responsible for getting patients to and from treatment, which when you think about daily radiation, for example, making sure that that caregiver has time away from work is also important. And I think the other issue is kind of to be emotionally supportive for your workers so that they know they don't have to be afraid of losing their job after completing cancer treatments. Uh, or you know, if they have to take uh, more sick leave than they have, they might be able to borrow some sick leave. Having cancer patients in small business is stressful for business owner, but I think that's not just something that you know that they need to think carefully about. You know, not not make cancer patients feel like you are increasing my company's premium because you have cancer. Building one off of what Tina just said, taking the long view. You know, it's not a short term. Where let's take the long view. This is a valued employee who is going to continue to contribute to the company, to our organization long term. Take the long view here, not make it so hard on them in the short term. I love like real strategies. And I think certainly that's those are things that people can do on the local level. We certainly need to discuss policy as well. It's hugely lacking. What are the next steps do you think we could? do from a policy standpoint to improve the lives of our survivors? I think there are a number of things that we can do. I mean, having health insurance outside of the employer-based mechanism as an alternative, having paid sick leave for someone who is ill as well as those who care for them, having a policy of accommodation. Currently, the ADA while it, or the Americans with Disabilities Act, while it covers cancer survivors, and it does not cover their caregivers. So there are things that we can do to extend. And then there are policies that are in place that are just cumbersome. And you see this, I'm sure, in your own practice. For a person to qualify for disability benefits, it takes a year. Being able to do that quicker, expedite it, that's a huge deal. That's a protection we have in place that is just extremely cumbersome to use, such that by the time a year goes away, the patient could have passed away, but yet still need those benefits for the family income prior to that happening. I'll also add that we talked about occupational health and rehabilitation and our comments and controversies piece and the importance of making sure that health insurance coverage extends to occupational health and rehabilitation to ensure that patients can successfully return to work. And I think on the provider side, there might be things that provider can do to kind of somehow accommodate working population schedule. I know this kind of add to providers' burden. They might have to open like evening clinic or weekends. But I think for working population, they really cannot afford to be not at the office for the type of job. I think this kind of arrangement would be very helpful. Yeah. And I think for providers to be asking patients about their employment, like what is, what type of job do you have? What types of job tasks do you need to do on a daily basis? Do you have health insurance coverage through your work? Or is it through someone else in your family? Or do you not have health insurance coverage at all? 
And then importantly, do you have paid sick leave and what types of accommodations will your employer offer you? And I know Kathy's done some really interesting work thinking about how patients can talk with their employers about work and what their options are. Yeah, opening the discussion would be a huge step forward to figure out what kind of referrals they need, what kind of letters need to be written for employers, how can they expedite the process to get patients what they need rather than have it be an afterthought. And I think if this is too much for providers to take on, then I think, you know, navigators can also share some of the workload or research nurse. I think, you know, those are information you can collect in like on patient intake. Great. So I guess the, the final question I have for you is what are your next steps? Where does this go next? I think we have a number of things that are ongoing. Looking, I'm involved in a study now with the team here at the University of Colorado, the Total Worker Health Team. And they're looking at the impact of interventions that with providers, the oncology care team, for things that they can do to be more supportive of the patient who is undergoing treatment. So it's a really unique perspective of how they apply total worker health concepts to the oncology care team. And that study's just getting underway and hopefully will provide guidance for the oncology care team of how to interact with the patient in order to provide the support they need. I think it's somewhat of a black box, everyone being well-intentioned, but not having the data to support them. So that's one study that I'm involved in currently. And then the three of us are always looking at policies and implications and what's the downstream effect. Tina did some great work on looking at the impact on the financial hardships and long-term impact on people who are diagnosed with cancer, how it extends well into retirement. And I think understanding those impacts and being able to communicate it is an important role that, that we play as a team. I'll also add that, you know, we have other things underway, sort of thinking about the impact of disruptions in employment for any period of time or for any reason. And what that means in terms of development of financial hardship and thinking about outside of the cancer diagnosis, how the cancer diagnosis affects employment and then affects development of financial hardship later, I think is a really important area, especially as there is more attention to medical financial hardship broadly. You know, many researchers I know are actively interested in the topic. And then I'll also add, so we're talking about research, but I'm increasingly interested and hopefully can work with Tina and Kathy on this in benefits managers and how those decisions are made for employers. And many employers take up a set package of benefits to offer for their employees without carefully considering what it means for patients with cancer and their caregivers. So thinking a little bit more about the decision-making process that employers have and thinking about the benefits they offer their workers. And so as a data geek, uh, I think I'm, I'm still trying to figure out a way to connect the claims data with like uh, short-term disability and then to see, can I figure out who took short-term disability and came back and what happened to those people? And it, it's been a difficult task because not many data collect those information. That goes back to the data infrastructure issues that we really need to have better data to understand uh, working age cancer patients. Well, thank you all so much. This has been incredibly fascinating. I learned so much. I just want to thank 
all three of you, Dr. Bradley, Dr. Yabroth, and Dr. Shi, for your exciting work. And I hope that we can continue to make strides in this area. And just thank you to all of our listeners. Again, this has been a JCO After Hours on Ensuring Employment After Cancer Diagnosis Are Workable Solutions Obvious, published online November 3rd, 2022. Please do check out our other podcast offerings on the JCO website, and we will see you next time. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Guest statements on the podcast do not express the opinions of ASCO. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.